Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Seth Leonard, winner of the hackathon at the most recent Eagle Alpha conference. In our conversation, Seth and I talk through exactly how he won, combining multiple alternative data sets to forecast the next inflation figure. As a mild warning, this is more technical than other episodes. In other news, I'll be speaking at the HFM European Quant Summit on Wednesday the 17th of November alongside Rani Paputri of NNIP, where we'll be discussing acquiring and combining alternative data sets. So in this episode, I'm joined by Seth Leonard, uh, who was the winner of the most recent Eagle Alpha Alpha Hackathon. Thanks very much for joining today, Seth. Yeah, thank you, Mark. It's a a pleasure to be here speaking with you. No, well, you're very welcome. Um, Seth, I heard your name twice immediately after this uh, after the hackathon and the only word the only name that i heard this there was this new kind of name in the in the new shark in the pool his name was seth that was it <laughs> you know everyone just knew you as seth and i was like who is this seth guy and, and managed to uh, manage to be introduced but yeah i i think i've 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 mentioned to you i think i think the branding is really strong and i think you should just keep it just, just absolutely just have Business cards just with one name on it, just yeah, Seth. Yeah, I think I think sort of black velvet with gold embossed sort of letters <laughs> exactly. that just say Seth it would be perfect. Exactly. So I think I think it's uh, you've you've arrived in a on the scene in a in a big in a big way and and with a big Beyonce style brand. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, you're so you're um, you're an interesting. So what what did you well why don't why don't we start by saying so you've you've worked in alternative data a little bit before perhaps you can introduce where you worked in alternative data before and then um yeah what it what it and then and then kind of how you ended up um competing in and, and winning the the eagle alpha hackathon yeah absolutely um well you know to go back to sort of how i how i began to get into alternative data it was really rather accidental um i was i was doing a phd in switzerland at the time and a professor of mine there recommended me to a company uh, that was looking at the relationship between um, freight data as a freight forwarding company, Kuhn & Nagel is one of the biggest um, worldwide. And they were looking at the relationship between all the freight data they had, which was, which was extensive, of course, and macroeconomic indicators like you know trade flows between countries and uh, industrial production. And they wanted to bring someone on board to, to sort of do the modeling for them to tie all this sort of disaggregated um, shipment data to uh, to something that you know is sort of verifiable to a to a benchmark that's that's published by an official statistical organization that sort of thing. So they brought me on board there. Um, you know, my own background was was purely methodological. Uh, I didn't actually know anything about the you know the series that were going into the model to begin with, and so and so that's how I got sort of started down this whole road. Um, and uh, and as I began to to work with the data and to and to work with these models, I grew to really like it. Just you know, particularly because it was so verifiable. You know, if you're doing if you're doing your modeling correctly, and if the data really can you know speak to the the trade flows you're trying to predict, then uh, then that comes out in you know in the back testing, and then of course as we ran the product live, 
in the actual numbers we were able to publish and, you know, consistently beat street estimates of these sorts of things. So that was, that was how I got into it. Um, and then from there, uh, my boss actually suggested we sort of take this, this show on the road effectively and, uh, and kind of open up the methodology to other people that, that might want to use it, which led to, um, you know, working with Eagle Alpha on this sort of thing. Of course, Eagle Alpha works with a, a very large number of alternative data providers and, uh, and they started doing these, these hackathons in the um, pandemic, actually. And so the first couple ones were all a, all a virtual event. So participated in some of those. Um, very cool to, to get your hands on a, on a whole lot of different data sets that, you know, normally I probably wouldn't have access to just to play with. So that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, and then, of course, we had the, the conference just recently, the one conference in New York, which was the first one that was in person following, well, sort of not not really done with the pandemic but you know as things began to open up again um so we were able to do that one in person which was great uh the subject of course was inflation as you know and uh and my own presentation was really just looking at now casting inflation whereby i should sort of define now casting here we're really wait 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 yeah wait, i think you're getting ahead of us a little bit okay so um okay. so that's great that's great for kind of setting the scene and uh I think so. To the my aim today is really to to try and talk a little bit through what you did because obviously you won. So it's a it's an excellent example of a of a of a of, of a proven model where you've you've won a hackathon with it. So it's a, so it's an excellent kind of uh, use case kind of um, case study um, that we can that we can talk through. So. Um, why don't we do that? Now, one of the things, I mean, there's a few things that, that's really good about this example. One of them is just the number of different um, alternative data sets that went into it, which is um, alternative data is uh, famously hard to, well, it's famously hard to use often because of its of its different kind of unwieldy forms, but it's often also famously hard to combine because data sets kind of come at you in a different in different ways and and kind of uh lots of lots of differences within data sets that you need to cope with before you even start uh combining them and crunching them so why don't we begin perhaps by so as you mentioned the task was to measure it to, to predict inflation can you talk a little bit more about exactly what that task was yeah, well, I mean, the, the format of the hackathon is, is sort of open-ended, you know, the, the subject is inflation, and we we're particularly sort of asked to comment on, you know, whether we thought it would be transitory or whether we're sort of going to see inflation in, in sort of at least the medium term uh, over the next couple of months continuing on uh, as it has for the previous couple of months. So, you know, we were we were allowed to kind of take our own sort of direction with that question. And, uh, and in my case, that was just really to sort of predict, okay, what are the next numbers going to be for inflation? And so we were looking at monthly um, consumer price index, actually. Uh, so that's, you know, that's monthly and it's it's a 13-day lag for the U.S. I mean, we were looking just at the U.S. case here. So actually, the, the timing of the conference was ideal because I had my presentation on, oh, I believe it was Tuesday. And then the actual number was published Wednesday. So you could, you know, verify whether I was actually any good or not pretty quickly, <laughs> which was amusing. And um, did the verdict come through that you'd won it? Did it come through after the after the, the number had been published or before? I came through before since they sort of decide yeah. on who uh, who wins the event right there. But then they, they threatened if, if the prediction turned out to be bad, they would have to retract <laughs> it. Luckily, they didn't have to retract that win. So I, uh, I got to keep it. That was good. 
Lovely. And then alternative data set wise, as you say, Eagle Alpha has access to a lot of alternative data sets through its through its business. Is it like a kind of big dressing up box and you're able to dive in and get what you want from it in order to uh, to, to answer the question or were you allocated alternative data sets? A little of each, you know, we can put in requests to say, like, I would love to work with, you know, uh, Essential, for example, is is one of the requests I made because they deal with pricing data. Of course, it's very appropriate to uh, to inflation themed mm. hackathon. But then, you know, we also have have uh, people, you know, data vendors who want to participate and we all sort of work together on that one thing that was really fun, actually, about this hackathon um, particularly more than the other ones that I've done with Eagle Alpha, is that the data vendors actually put a lot of work into doing that kind of pre-processing of the data that can be very labor intensive for the for the data scientists. As you said, you know, this this data can be really unwieldy. And I remember in an earlier hackathon, I got dumped, you know, just about a terabyte of footfall data. It's, you know, it's so big you can't read it into memory. You have to create an SQL database. It's very cumbersome to work with. So so the fact that the vendors really participated in this event made my life a, a whole lot easier. Had you seen these data sets before? Did you know which which ones you wanted beyond essential? And also there's a good opportunity to, to say which ones you ended up with. Sure. Um I had worked with so LinkUp was uh was part of that event as well. And I had w- worked with LinkUp before in a previous hackathon. So I had an idea of sort of what they had and, and how it might fit in. Uh, and Revelio Labs as well. Um, same thing there. Uh, the other two I worked with, SpaceNo and Causality Link, I, I hadn't worked with previously. So those data sets were, uh, were fairly new to me. But again, uh, in both of those cases, I was able to sort of go back and forth quite a bit with the actual data vendors. And they really helped out in sort of, you know, creating a, a, an indexer series that was relatively easy to integrate into the model. Of course, you know, one of the things that you have with alternative data, and you were you were hinting at this earlier, is that, you know, often the frequencies don't line up. Some of it might be weekly. Uh, a lot of it is daily, of course, or even higher frequency than daily. And so a big challenge is sort of finding um, a methodology or a model that's going to bring it all together in a, in a meaningful way. So that which is sort of the niche I ended up working in in the alternative data world was this what we call sort of mixed frequency in the jargon, right? How do you take all these data sets that don't necessarily line up and, and bring them together into a model that actually makes sense both intuitively and statistically? And so that was your that was your niche and that was your niche in Academica, was it? Like this is are it you was. kind of Exactly. So you're one of the you're one of the you know you're one of the people in the world who can do this type thing. Sure, I mean, and there's you know this this sort of methodology, it, it sort of in macroeconomics became popular with sort of the New York Fed now casting model, for example, was a was an early example of of using these mix, mixed frequency models in practice for uh, for a macroeconomic setting. So you know it is out there. Um, but but yeah, it's it it is it's still a little niche, I think. Um, most mm. people when oh, they... it's but it's it's incredibly valuable, and it's kind of the holy grail that you hear an awful lot about um, from a from a kind of hedge fund perspective of of how to like combining these different data sets in order to to kind of fill in the data mosaic. So um so I would I would suggest that these skills are are niche, but um but in demand. So it's not a bad not a bad place to be, I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think it's all right. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's not like being a PhD in kind of a, an obscure Amazonian frog. Let's let's put it like sure, that. Sure, exactly. <laughs> um, but let us. Um, so you you had your you had your challenge to try and predict predict CPI. You had your five data sets. How did you go about it? 
Um, so, you know, the first thing that I always do with a data set, and, and I think this is fairly common and, you know, to anyone who's doing data science, I, I totally recommend it, is to try as much as possible just to visualize the data, you know, just put it put it on a graph and look at a picture. Um, you know, eyeball, eyeball econometrics are so valuable. And that's hard when you have a lot of data, of course, if you're working with a really big set, you know, several thousand series, you can't look at them all at once. Mm. But, you know, in the degree to which you can... You can take, uh, you know, those thousand series and they aggregate up to something meaningful. Just just looking at what's going on there is is the easiest way to see like, oh, there's a huge break in the data at, you know, the financial crisis in, in you know, 2007, 8 or, or whatever the issue is. Um, a lot of those issues come out right away when you take a look. So that, that's, that's always my first go-to thing is to, to try and visualize what's going on. And you can also immediately see what correlates and what doesn't. So you look at the data before you think about the problem. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that, that can really, you know, that can also really inform because in an event like this, like the hackathon is fairly open-ended, right? That can inform where you go with the uh, with the actual event. You can say, oh, well, you know, it looks like there's a, there's a good story to tell, um, you know, with between. Uh, really, a funny thing came out of this event, just sort of a, a digression. But, you know, the, the price of women's jumpsuits tended to be very correlated with inflation. And it was a, it's, it's still a bit of a mystery. I haven't looked into exactly what's going on there. You know, potentially that's spurious, but, um, but it was a curious thing. And so it made a, a fun little anecdote during the presentation to say, you know, look at this. Isn't this wild? For sure. How long did you have for the whole for the whole for all of your work from start to finish? Um, it's pretty you know, pretty quick turnover. Uh, I think I worked on it, you know, about a week, but not full time, of course, because there were other projects going on as well. I, I think sort of being being a hackathon, it's a little bit just get it out quickly is the is the mentality. Okay, so how much time of that are you spending looking at the data before you start working? Oh, the actual initial analysis is half a day, maybe. Um, you know, just a, a morning or something, going through each of the data sets. You know, making sure you can obviously load it without any problem that you know what each of the columns uh, represent. You know, all of these vendors are very good about sending data dictionaries too. So it's it was always fairly clear uh, what I was looking at. But again, that was you know, that was largely due to the vendors being being so helpful and so cooperative for the event. Was it immediately obvious which uh, how the data if I if I'd asked you at the end of that first day uh, or the uh, yeah after after lunchtime what uh, uh, if it, which data sets were going to be useful in what ways on the last day would you think you would have known or did more continue to emerge as you as you went along. No, uh, you know, actually, I probably wouldn't have known um, just from that initial analysis. You know, we were looking at CPI um, and, as opposed to core CPI. So gasoline prices obviously were were a huge factor there. Um, so that, that was a no brainer. But then what, you know, what was interesting about it is what sort of identification can you get above and beyond gasoline prices? Like the Cleveland Fed has an inflation now cast that's based almost entirely on gasoline prices. So that's that's interesting. But the game is sort of can we do better than that? Can we get a little more detail on uh, on what's actually going on with the data and what are actually going on with prices? Which is, of course, where the where the alternative data comes in. Of course. Okay. So, what did you do? Um, so, from there, you know, the the first step was, as I as I said earlier, to sort of put together a model that can bring in things at different frequencies. The gasoline prices that we were working with was weekly. And uh, most of this alternative data we were working with was daily. So, you know, we had to 
come up with a, a methodology that brings that all together to now cast an index that's monthly, in this case, the CPI. So, um, so the first step was basically putting together a model that, that brought together those differences in frequencies in a meaningful way. And I won't get you know too into the, the technical stuff there, but it was it was effectively aggregating this in a way that replicates the pattern of missing observations in the tail of the data throughout the historical stuff, um, and that actually just 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 uh, so missing observations would be in the in the fact that uh, the history wouldn't go back as far as your CPI history because CPI has gone gone back a long way, but um, in terms of uh, the frequency would you uh, it, so what's the issue with um making all like taking the if you want to put it all on a monthly basis what's the issue with um averaging out uh a month worth of of data Sure, sure. I mean, the way I look at frequency is also an issue of missing observations because I look at all the data as being daily. In this case, daily was the highest frequency we were working with. So then, of course, for uh, for a monthly series, you have you know one observation every thirty or so days. Um, so you have you know more or less twenty nine missing observations there, and uh, and you know just aggregating it up would be fine, except that in the tail of the data, so in the current month, you often don't have a, a full month of data, right? You know, say say it was the 15th of the month and we had, you know, the uh, the first 15 days of, of jumpsuit prices from Essential, right? Well, then, you know, then we don't have a full month. You can't really just aggregate that up and say, you know, here's, here's our monthly index for jumpsuit prices. What you actually end up doing uh, in this case is taking the first 15 days of all the historical data as well and saying, you know, look, we're only looking at the first 15 days here in the tail. So therefore, we're going to take all those, just those first 15 days and all the historical data as well. And that's actually going to give us a better indication of what the data is telling us. Because even if even if you expect every day to come in more or less the same, when you have fewer observations in a month, you're going to have a, a more volatile series. So the variance is going to be greater. So by by sort of censoring things and only taking the data that you actually see in the tail in the historical data, you're accurately representing the information you have currently. Um, so that's sort of the the sort of subtlety there. The thinking. Okay, so you have created a. Um, you've basically ch chosen your set of assumptions or set of of ways of filling in the missing data by by kind of um, clever impution um, in order to, to 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 fill in the gaps. Um, what do you do next? Sure. Well, the issue with alternative data is, of course, that most of it is very young, right? Um, you know, you mentioned that like CPI goes back quite a long way. Uh, the alternative data series I was working with for this event went back more or less to 2013, um, 2015 in some cases. That that was about where we were starting. So we did have a couple of years of data, which of course is is great, but um, mm -hmm. but it didn't go back nearly as far. So then the next trick was to sort of come up with a methodology that is able to work with series, even if there are, in this case, missing observations in the beginning of the data, because we didn't want to throw out CPI observations um, back you know, in the past. I think we started in the 90s, basically 1990, with, uh, with CPI observations. It's still, it's still informative. It still tells you about how prices move in relation to, you know, in this case, gasoline price data went back that far as well. So we don't want to throw any of that out. Um, but at the same time, we do want to use these alternative data series that, that have a, a much shorter history. 
So, mm-hmm. so actually, I ended up sort of building a machine learning model that was that was able to kind of bring that all together. Can you? I don't think you should be too afraid of going of going too technical. Um, try. Sure. Sure. Okay. We'll give it a go. Um, so, you know, basically the, uh, the model I wanted to use was, a was a random forest model. There've been some, um, some earlier academic work that said, you know, in these kinds of situations, now casting inflation and that sort of thing. Um, these, these random forest models have been very effective, more effective than sort of other, um, state-based models that I'd worked with in the past, like dynamic factor models. So that was the direction I wanted to go. The, the question was, okay, you know, existing libraries don't really take into account this sort of structure with missing data in the beginning of the series. Um, you know, the alternatives you have there is basically just to impute values in the beginning of the series, which is not very good because then you're basically falsifying data. I don't like doing that. Or to just drop those series that have missing observations. And of course, I didn't want to do that because that meant dropping all the alternative data. So mm. the, way, the way the algorithm progressed is um, so a, a you know a regression tree in this case is just going to split on a certain variable, say gasoline prices, and then everything below that split is going to go to one node. Everything above the split is going to go to a different node. So as the model progresses, it splits on different variables. So starting with gasoline prices, and then maybe with bond spreads, and then maybe with oil prices, and then we get down to something like uh, the price index from Essential or the price of a certain. Um, you know, jacket or boot or something from Essential, or or you know maybe from LinkUp, the number of new job postings. As you get and you down, are, so through through this process, you are finding what is the most important uh, the most important uh, factor essentially. That's in that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at each split, the model goes through all the available data and says, okay, this is the most informative. You know, given the sort of residual variance we have, it, it'll pick up you know, a, a certain price index or whatever it, it deems to be the most important in this case, you know, from a mean squared error point of view. We may, we may be going, we may be going too far, but at the base of this is the decision tree. Um, and exactly. that is, and then a random forest is running a, a very large number of decision trees. A regression tree is um, a form of random forest or a form of decision tree or somewhere in between? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a, essentially a form of decision tree. It's just that instead of having categories, you have continuous variables. So you just split, you know, your decision is everything above falls into one category, everything below falls into a different category, but really I- identical sort of idea here. Yeah, okay. Okay, so you decided on that, and so you were going through and you were identifying, and you were running that on all of the all of the different types. Of, I mean, this this must have taken a lot of com- computing power because <laughs> you're running it on all the different data sets and for all the different possible uh, parts which might be playing into the CPI. Sure, and then you do it a couple thousand times, um, you know, to to, yeah. to create a bunch of these trees. But the key was that you know when you get into a terminal node or a leaf in the jargon that uh, that only uses um, data that has a, has a short history, you're able to sort of bring down the number of series you use to just be those which, which include, you know, the complete history. So as you work down towards the leaves of the tree, you actually are able to sort of slim the, the data you're down, the data you're using down to, to what's available, um, which, which allowed us to accommodate these, um, these, you know, short, short history or, or relatively young series. And then you do, yeah, do it a couple thousand times. In this case, I just did 2,000 times. It's, it re- runs fairly fast, um, you know, getting nerdy about it. You know, I wrote the actual code in C++, which is super fast in terms of execution. So, mm. um, so it wasn't too burdensome, really. 
That's C++ instead of Python. Uh, instead of R is what I was working in, actually, okay. as, as the sort of base language. You're, a, um, you're, a, you're an R person. Fair yeah, enough. yeah, I do tend uh, to run that way. <laughs> Jolly good. And um, so you, and so what this has given you then is the bunch, which of the, of the, I mean, which of the columns essentially in your, in all of your five different data sets are the best at predicting um, the CPI number at the end. Would you, uh, were they bunched into a certain, like, were, were you able to say, right, so were they all under more, under like one or two or three alternative data providers more than others? Um, well, you know, unsurprisingly, because Essential provides price data, when we actually use their disaggregated price data, that that tended to dominate the um, the analysis here. They just, you know, it, it was it's just perfect for the event. So there's no surprise there. Though I should say all, you know, all the alternative data providers did have series that entered the model as significant. Um, you know, not necessarily every series they provided, but there was, you know, they were all sort of all represented in there. So, you know, during the presentation, I, I mentioned, you know, which, which series from each data provider ended up being the ones that were, that were significant and they all, they all did contribute something. Okay. So you've done this, you've got your columns, which are the most, the most descriptive of the CPI, uh, across all your data sets. What, what, where are we? We started on Monday morning and we spent five, uh, we spent half the day looking at the data. Where are we now after we've done everything we've just done? Oh, I think we're probably somewhere in Thursday. Um, we've, we've, okay, we've uh, we've covered a lot of ground. So yeah, we're through to I mean, Thursday. The, we're the, near the end now. What, what took a bit of time here was actually just sort of putting together the, the new algorithm that, that actually allows for, in, in the sort of jargon, a ragged head of the data. So those missing observations in the beginning of the data, that's what required actually writing up a, a new algorithm here. So that was the big time-consuming part of the analysis. Had you created something like that before or was it something completely new? Yeah, I had actually, uh, you know, these hackathons are really great events because it's, it allows you to experiment a bit. Um, there's a, there's a little less pressure to be, you know, right every time since, yeah. uh, since it's sort of a, a just for fun kind of event. So I had actually for previous hackathons, I, I do sort of similar stuff. I like to experiment with new ideas uh, in that, in that framework. Okay, excellent. So now we're on Thursday. We're nearing that. We're nearing the finish line because we know what the most important parts of our data are. Um, do we then combine these columns or refine or, or find the perfect way to combine them in order to to end up with our final number? That's exactly right. Yeah. So um, so at this point, you know, we take all of these simulated trees and and we effectively just average what they say is going to be the correct number. And there we go. We get a you know, we get a point forecast for uh, inflation that way. And that's it. That's it. Yeah, and then and then you and then I got to make the slides for the presentation. That's the last part of the, that's, <laughs> that's the last Friday. part of the whole game. So, <laughs> but that's all right for yeah. Nothing like last minute for putting together PowerPoint slides. So, um, so what then? So we've got some moving parts there. We've got the model, which was no, which wasn't easy. We've got the um, which you created from scratch, and we've also got the the kind of synchronizing of the data and and actually the the assumptions and the decisions you made around bringing the frequencies into line. Where do you, where would you think if you had to point at one thing? Where would you think the competition was won? That's a good question. Um, you know, it is it, it was a bit spread over over all the parts of the analysis. I think it's it's a little bit hard to pinpoint just sort of one one approach okay, that, that, that really brought it 
you know, brought it out. It, it was sort of, it takes the whole package to make it work, I think. Seth, Seth, don't worry. No one asks Lionel Messi at the end of a game where, where, he, where he won the game. Everyone just enjoys the whole performance. So it was an un- <laughs> sure. un- unfair question. Um, what, um, and so, and, and going back to the data a little bit. So we've, so the essential, obviously, um, it's price data. So it was, it was, it's very clear really how that plays in. Perhaps you could talk around the way the different, uh, alternative data sets, um, were useful and played into the final model. Sure. Sure. Um, so, uh, you know, the two, two of them were actually employment data. So we're looking at like the number of jobs posted, the number of jobs created, um, number of jobs deleted from you know, from, from websites and that sort of thing. And so for LinkUp, it, it tended to be the one that really um, influenced the analysis was the difference between jobs created and jobs deleted. Um, obviously, you get a, a bit of a feel for kind of how hot the labor market is that way. And, uh, and you know, not surprising that the labor market should drive prices to a certain extent, because as employers set wages, they need to set prices, in, you know, at a, at a level that's going to cover the wages they're offering to new hires. So, um, so not, uh, not a lot of surprise there. The other employment data that I used was from Revelio Labs and, uh, and sort of a similar interpretation to the, uh, to the actual data there. It was interesting though, the, the one that came through there as, as significant was how long it took to fill jobs. Um, particularly actually it was vacancies in, um, in restaurants and that could be a little skewed because restaurants were so heavily hit over COVID. Um, you know, the, the reason that restaurants were more important than, for example, construction is, is probably to do with the fact that they were really, you know, the employment there fluctuated dramatically over COVID. And we also saw, of course, dramatic changes in price levels over COVID. So there's, there's you know, something of a, uh, you know, exogenous factor driving both of those things. But that did enter significantly. And then Space Node, those guys do satellite observations and from satellite observations come up with industrial indices, um, which are industry specific. And from Space Node, it was the vehicle manufacturing that really entered significantly how much activity was going on. And this is just U.S. So how much activity was going on at U.S. light vehicle manufacturing plants, looking particularly at like what's the inventory on the on the lot look like there? Yeah. So was that would that be a lagging thing a little bit in terms of when I don't know when prices are going up, then you're going to see more or when sorry, when car, then more cars will be manufactured, then that might bring prices down, perhaps. Sure. Um, and I, it's uh, the interpretation could go both ways there, of course. You know, one yeah. thing that's going to be happening is is that immediately in the pandemic, no one's buying a car, right? As things, you know, go down the tubes, uh, it's, you know, durable goods are, are really volatile in the economy because they're easy to put off, right? If you don't need a new car right away, you can just keep the old chunker going for a little while, then you put it off. Um, so that's, that's what we were seeing initially, I think, is that just people were putting off durable goods purchases. Uh, and then all of a sudden, when things switch back on, everyone seemed to want a new car. And then you, you bring in the sort of supply shortages that we were having, you know, there was the issue with chips. So there were fewer cars even being produced. That again is going to be, you know, pushing car prices up as, uh, as there's just less supply. So it was a little bit running a uh, causality running in both directions there, I think would be the interpretation of, of, you know, why that, uh, why that entered significantly. And then the last one was uh, causality link. And they actually, they're, they're looking at news articles, um, you know, huge range of, uh, of articles in, in, a, in a number of different languages, actually, 
but obviously being for the US, this was a bit targeted. And, and then sort of aggregating that into what are people saying about inflation? You know, are people saying that future inflation is going to go up? Are they saying that current inflation is going to go up or down? And, and how can you bring that into a, into a sort of reasonable index? And that's another one where the, the actual data vendor did a lot of the work for me. And you put these put these you know mentions in various news sources into an index, which then ended up being significant in the analysis. So so it turns out that all the people yakking in the newspapers have at least some idea of what they're talking about because their uh, their predictions, if you aggregate them all together, seem to be pretty valid. They either have some idea what they're talking about, or they're they're influencing. Or exactly, yeah. Again, not, not obviously clear which way causality runs there. Someone, someone has to stop them. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, but so uh, and so, you ended up obviously with. Um, so you kind of started up with a kind of the Fred Nowcast, um, which just uses gasoline prices, and then you created a kind of alternative Nowcast of of, of inflation using um using alternative data as well um how did you how did you compare um so we did pretty well there it was actually you know for the for the september um number we were very close i think their prediction was 0.36 ours was 0.37 um but then actually when we used the disaggregated data it was 0.43 and the actual number turned out to be 0.41 so Mm. so you beat them either way we beat them. But it was it was a narrow margin, uh, at least if you look at the aggregated alternative data. Yeah, what do you mean by the disaggregated alternative data? Sure. Well, th- we I, we had this issue of sort of computational intensity, um, particularly using all the price data from Essential because they have a, a large number of products that they cover, of course. Mm. And so, um, what I ended up doing is running two models. One used the you know the full history of well, the full history that I had for the CPI, so back to 1990. The other only ran data since 2010. Um, that kind of shortened up the, the computational intensity of the, of the actual pro- of the project. And um, because all that essential price data needed to be seasonally adjusted, it was a pretty slow process um, because we're doing this sort of back testing as well to see how it, how it does historically over time to make sure our, our modeling assumptions are valid and all that sort of thing. Um, so, so only use the disaggregated data in the in the shorter model, so the shorter historical period. I I'm, I think um, smoke started coming out of your machine probably on Tuesday night. Uh, you went to bed <laughs> on Tuesday night, not sleeping, thinking about it. You woke up on Wednesday morning with a solution, and everything was okay. That's about right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm familiar. I'm familiar. Sure. Um, <laughs> And um, and so you think Fred should start using these, start using alternative data forthwith to um, to with their with their inflation prediction? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, absolutely. And you know, and I also to give them credit, I think there's some interest on that side as well, um, coming from the central banks now. And we we mentioned when we were speaking um, just a little bit earlier that now the the sort of feature in the Economist this week is about using alternative data for macroeconomic applications like inflation and GDP, industrial production, that sort of thing. So so there is sort of a, this awakening happening in in the world of macroeconomics as well saying, you know, actually, hey, there's, you know, there's a lot of value to this data. I think the pandemic really spurred a lot of that because all of a sudden, you know, things went things went pretty nuts. If you look at like initial jobless claims that you saw numbers that you, you know, were just completely off the charts and uh, and very hard to interpret. So all of a sudden, when when traditional 
uh, indicators start to break down on you, you look around and say, okay, what else is there? And I, I think that really fueled a lot of interest in alternative data for macroeconomic applications. So I, my little prediction here is that I see this being brought much more into the sort of mainstream macroeconomic central banking kind of arena now that, now that it's sort of proven its worth. And is there anything I've missed from from perhaps your slides or or from any any big takeaway which I've missed from 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 the hackathon? No, no, I think that pretty well covers it from the hackathon. Um, you know, it was a fun event. The the forecasts were good, but of course, you know, sample size of one. If you have one good forecast, that doesn't mean you're going to do everything exactly right in the future. But uh, but I hope it's I hope it ends up being representative of of future work. Seth, the general is only as good as his last battle, and your your last battle was 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 pretty successful. And um, you've been spotted. You've you've been um, you've you've you're already reaping the rewards. You've you've uh, you've you've recently um, you've recently signed a new uh, a, a new uh, you've joined a new undertaking. I, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So I was just going to mention that at the hackathon, um, I met up with Matei from System Two, and we sort of got to talking about you know how we could potentially collaborate. Um, you know, I've just been running my own little consultancy doing this sort of thing. So, so yeah, System Two has now agreed to acquire the consultancy that I run, um, AutoQuant, and sort of bring me on board there. So that's a that's a very exciting development for me, of course, um, to be able to work with a team like that. And uh, and actually going to be much more alternative data focused than I had been in the past. I had been doing some consulting for central banks and that sort of thing in a in a very sort of traditional econometric setting. Now um, working with System Two, it's it's going to be a lot more focused on alternative data. So excited to continue to see what we can do with it. Fantastic. And Matei is a is a friend of the podcast. I've had him on um, earlier this year, and we had a, we had an excellent conversation. And I think it's I think it's inspirational because because Matei and and was was obviously a competitor with you in this hackathon, and and um, it gives hope for us all that when we get beaten, then we can just buy the opposition. And, um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and exactly. Problem 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 solved. You, it, it just goes away. So so I think that's I think that's perfect. And now yeah, with your yeah. with your with your forces combined, then I would think. So system two will be will be pretty unstoppable so a great get for them i think yeah absolutely and, and excited to work with the team as well it seems like a superb group of people so looking forward to it fantastic well seth um it's been a great pleasure having you on and thank you so much for for rattling through what was a whole week's work um and pretty technical so thanks so much for coming on and really interesting and um, and best of luck with the new role yeah thank you very much and thanks for having me it's been really fun likewise